The thing about war, says today's guest, as long as you're not dying, is that it's oddly exhilarating. We'll find out why she says that and when in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk and very pleased to introduce to you Linda Schuster, who is the author of Dirty Wars and Polished Silver, the life and time of a war correspondent turned ambassadrix. Linda, Linda Schuster, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Linda, this is a very interesting beginning to really a fascinating read. The thing about war, as long as you're not dying, is that it's oddly exhilarating. A lot of people would not exactly describe it as oddly exhilarating. So help us out. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, I think we should begin at the beginning. I uh, grew up in Detroit, and uh, the motto on the Indiana license plates back then was wander which I took as excellent advice for anyone raised in the region, grow up and leave. And part of this was um, rejecting my mother's life, which I thought was just very, very boring. Um, She was a housewife. And it was part sort of requisite youthful rebellion Um, and uh, also part desire to see the world. Um, This desire was was, uh, in some way fueled by a stamp collection that I had as a kid, which piqued my interest in far, far away places. Um, the, the stamp in particular that really caught my attention was a green triangular one from Qatar that had Arabic calligraphy on it and, and I think a, a camel and, and, and a man and an Arab headdress, and it just seemed exotic beyond belief to me. And so my message to parents is... Be warned, keep those stamp collections away from your children. They tend to lead to all sorts of subversive ideas. Sounds like good advice. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So in, um, in pursuit of adventure, I finished high school early at age 17 and um, ran away from home to a kibbutz in the northern part of Israel. And about five minutes after I got there, the Yom Kippur War broke out. And instead of scaring me, it, as I wrote in the book, exhilarated me. And that's sort of how this whole uh, interest in being in war and being in places of adventure started. For those who don't know what a kibbutz is, explain what it is and actually how you got there from Detroit. A kibbutz, well, they have changed radically over in the last decades, but back then they, it's, it's, it was a collective agricultural settlement and um, was very much the, was very much responsible for most of Israel's agriculture back then. And they had programs, um, since they needed people to help work on the land, they had programs for um, foreign students. You, if you could just get there, you could work half the day and study half the day, and they would provide you, provide you with room and board. And the way I got there was, um, since I knew that this was something I could do, um, I worked every day after, after school when I was in high school in a bakery, a Detroit bakery, and also on weekends. And unbeknown to my parents, that's what I was saving my money for. Now, once you saved your money and actually got there, your parents knew where you were at that point, yes? Yes, they did know. 
All right. And so there you are. And all of a sudden, things really begin to pop off. What what was your initial thought and reaction? So if if your listeners um, can recall or know anything about it, that war in 1973 took Israel completely by surprise. Um, the Egyptians attacked from the south and the Syrians from the north, and the Israeli government, I think it was a combination of hubris and just a complete misreading of all the intelligence, was totally un- un- unprepared for this, as was the kibbutz. So it was um, Yom Kippur, which in the Jewish religion is the holiest day of the year, and it's um, characterized by a 26-hour fast, and it's always incredibly hot, and um, the entire country shuts down on that day, and including um, the Voice of Israel, which is the radio station, so you really have no way of knowing what's going on. And there I am, this 17-year-old girl, sitting in a room that had air conditioning, the only place on, on the whole kibbutz that had air conditioning, when all of a sudden these massive explosions start, um, I, are, are just happening all around me, and someone yelled <laughs> that we were under attack, and that we all should go to a bomb shelter, and we ran to a bomb shelter only to find them locked, because, as I say, the kibbutz was as unprepared as the rest of the country. You know, it's interesting. At one point early on in uh, Dirty Wars and Polished Silver, you refer to your mom's life as relentlessly uninteresting. And it would seem to me that the difference between relentlessly uninteresting and trying to get into a locked bomb shelter, I I might choose relentlessly uninteresting. Yes, but think about being 17 years old. Okay. Remember, you have a sense of being immortal. Indeed. You have a sense of all the adventure is out there just waiting for you to ha- it to happen. Um, so it probably, you might have had a different mindset if this happened to you in your teens. Maybe. <laughs> she says begrudgingly. <laughs> what was your family's reaction when they ultimately found out what was going on? Well, I think it was, I'm sure they were horrified and terrified. Um, That was a very, I mean, we're talking about the 70s. And back then, there was none of the sort of instant communications that we have now. There was no email. There there was no texting. um, There was no instant messaging. There was only very, very expensive long-distance telephone calls and snail mail. So... um, my mother read about it in the newspaper just like everybody else did, and I'm sure those dispatches were a day or two old um, by the time they got into the paper. And my parents were divorced at the time, and my father was living in London. Um, and I think about three or four days into the war, he did manage to get a call through to the kibbutz, oddly enough. And I was in another bomb shelter, and there was shelling going on at the time, and it was very late at night. And some runner suddenly came into my bomb shelter and said, telephone call for Linda Schuster. Like, for all the world, I was sitting on a ho- you know, some beach somewhere, and I had to follow him um, through the night. There was a complete blackout, so the only way it was lit was when you would see these explosions, trying to follow him to this bunker. And I picked up the phone, and my father said, are you okay? You need to get out of there immediately. Um, and I, I don't think he understood that I actually, the greatest danger I was in was in going from my bomb shelter 
to the the next bomb shelter to get his telephone call. (laughs) So clearly you did not get out of there immediately. No, I did not want to get out of there. Also, from a very practical point of view, the airport, the, the only international airport in the country was shut. All vehicles had been commandeered, all private vehicles, or as many as, as was possible, had been commandeered by the military. People drove in their private cars to their bases in order to, um, to when they were called up, to fight. And all the buses had been commandeered. There was no pub, There was no way of getting anywhere in the country at the time. When you did get out, where did you go? Um, I went to. I ultimately went back to the Midwest and did my um, my undergraduate work there. And then I and the whole time I was sort of thinking, okay, how do I get back to the Middle East? How do I get? How do how do I lead a life of adventure? I mean, this isn't going to happen magically, and nobody's going to support this lifestyle, so I need to figure this out. Um, and I fell into journalism um, kind of by default because I was trying to figure out where to go to graduate school. Um, and initially I thought I would have an academic career and then sort of woke up in the middle of one night, and I was actually accepted into a Ph.D. program, woke up in the middle of one night hyperventilating, thinking, I'm too young to die in academia. Um, (laughs) At that point, it was very late in the summer, and I saw something in the course catalog about a graduate program in journalism, no experience necessary, two years and you're out. So um, having decided on that career, I um, I was very determined to spend as little time as possible working domestically. So I got very lucky in that respect. Um, first to be hired by the Wall Street Journal directly out of journalism school. And then when they, the journal back then would fly you to New York to speak to all the, you know, on high editors there. And um, when they said to me, which domestic bureau of ours are you interested in working in? And I said, oh, I never want to work domestically. I only want to work internationally. And they nodded very understandingly and promptly dispatched me to their Dallas bureau. Well, there you go. A New Yorker, Yorker, it probably is foreign. (laughs) But um, I got very lucky because for some reason that bureau was responsible for covering Central America, which back in the early 80s was one of the hottest um, stories, international stories around. And so within a year out of journalism school, I was covering one of the hottest international stories around. You know, what's interesting, as I was reading your book, even as truly as a youngster, um, you were, let's say, um, what's the word? Intense? Um, uh, clear about your views? I, uh, You talk about the day that your mom and dad came into the room, sat at you know, sat you down and said that uh, they were getting a divorce, and you were furious with your mother 
because she was pleading with him not to leave. Right. I was furious at my mother, and I realized, um, well, because he had, at that sort of little familial meeting where my siblings and I were informed, my father informed my siblings and I that he had fallen in love with another woman and was leaving my mother, and my mother is pleading with him to stay, and all I could think of was, where, where is your pride? Um, I understand years later that that fury was probably a bit misplaced, that <laughs> it should have been directed at my father. Maybe. But, yeah, but that's <laughs> all... That's all part of growing up, True. and that was all part of this growing up experience. You know, there, there was another amusing episode, at least from where I sit, as you visited with your dad in London, and you asked um, uh, his partner to please be vigilant about taking birth control. Can, can you share that story? <laughs> I was such a horrible young person, I have to say. Um, I left a little note on her pillow saying, please be vigilant about taking birth control. My sisters and I can't accept another sibling at this point <laughs> in time. And I, I really, if anyone ever did that to me, I would not have countenanced it. And I have to go on the record saying that they ultimately married. They ultimately have a child, had a child who is one of my sisters and whom I adore greatly and whom when I published this book, I had to write her a letter saying, please don't be offended that I included this. I and everyone else just love you madly. <laughs> well, as I said, you were unique, insistent, clear about your views. <laughs> the idea that you were hired by the Wall Street Journal right out of school, for those listening who are aspiring to be journalists, how likely is that to happen today, do you think? You know, I don't know. It's a different paper. First, let me explain that. Um, the old journal, this is before it was taken over by um, the Murdoch people, the Murdoch Corporation. Um, the Wall Street Journal had, still has, a reputation of being an extremely conservative newspaper. Back then, it actually had a kind of bipolar um, uh, 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 sort of existence. On the one hand, and that's probably the wrong, uh, the wrong characterization of it, but on the one hand, the editorial page indeed was and still is very, very conservative. But there was a pretty good firewall between the news side, the news pages, and the editorial page. And the news pages prided themselves on hiring young reporters right out of school whom they saw as very promising and molding them. I think as one editor said to me, if you're going to make, if, if you're going to develop bad habits, we want you to develop our bad habits. But having said that, um, it was incredibly competitive. So it was a huge honor, actually, to be hired um, right out of school by them. And I was very, very lucky. And were there many women in the newsroom? No, no. Um, certainly in the Dallas Bureau, I was the only, it was a bureau, I think, of about maybe eight reporters, and I was the only woman. And I was, I'd say nowadays, bullied. It would be characterized as bullied. It was meant in good fun, but uh, I was definitely bullied by the other reporters in the bureau. 
How did you deal with it? I mean, you were still fairly young, yes? Yeah, it was really frustrating, really frustrating. Um, Here you are trying to establish yourself as a journalist, trying to be professional, living in a city that you're a stranger in. I mean, I moved down there knowing nobody, um, and trying to deal with all of these things and the natural inclination, certainly, and certainly among all the other young male reporters in the Bureau, was for them to be buddies. And here I was kind of like a little mascot, you know. Um, it was tough. It was really tough. I was actually incredibly pleased when I got to work abroad and just basically spend all my time out of the Bureau. That is understandable. Before you even got to the Bureau, I also noted, and I think it's important to talk about, particularly for those listening who are looking at beginning careers, you sent out 43 letters inquiring about employment. 43. And uh, 42 of them said, gee, Linda, what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had had a rather unusual background because I did not major in journalism as an undergrad because I hadn't worked on my high school paper I only went in as a graduate um, student and then managed to get an internship back in Israel and then talked my way over the border into southern Lebanon which had been invaded by Israel um, not so uh, fairly recently and got a tour of a war zone and then wrote a story about that for for the Detroit paper. Um, so I graduated with, first of all, only about, you know, no more than a dozen clips. Usually aspiring journalists graduate from journalism school with a whole uh, book full of clips. And all of my clips were from abroad. So these newspapers, and they were large newspapers and medium-sized and tiny newspapers, all wrote back to me and said, these are very nice stories from abroad, but can you do police beat? And I thought, wait a minute, I talked my way over an international border. If they don't think that that can't translate into covering city council, then they're missing something here. And indeed they were. Yeah. (laughs) The Wall Street (laughs) Journal looked at those clips and said, oh, nice, we'll take you. Excellent. So one of the the stories perhaps is that do not be deterred from your dream. Not in the least. I'd say tenacity of purpose. Keep going. And as as the head of my journalism program used to yell at me, do everything. Try everything and never give up. Never give up. I think that's really so important. There are so many things that can get in one's way. Just as as an aside from Dirty Wars and Polished Silver for a moment, what is your sense of what it is like for women in particular in the world of journalism and media today? Better, worse, challenging? Oh, I think it's much better today. First of all, just by sheer numbers, um, you just see so many more foreign, female foreign correspondents. You see so many female print journalists. Um, you see so many female producers now. But I'd say that just as there are huge challenges for women in any workplace environment, you still find them. You still find those same challenges in journalism. But overall, I'd say it's reflective of society in general in that it has improved greatly. So that perhaps is the good news. 
that is good news. It is very good news, and it is a profession that I would encourage any and everyone, male or female, to pursue. Let's go back to the Wall Street Journal. They hired you. You were doing your thing. You were doing your stories. At one point, you met someone by the name of Dial. Tell us about Dial. Dial Torgerson um, was a veteran foreign correspondent for the Los Angeles Times who I'd actually studied about in journalism school because um, he did something. He had been based in Israel. I did not meet him during my time there. And he managed to thwart the censors by flying, I think, to London to print a story that they did not want printed. Um, And so I knew about him. And I met him on, I think, the second or third day of my very first reporting trip abroad and um, was immediately smitten with him, even though he was quite a bit older than I. I would say he must have been, given that you studied about him. Yeah. (laughs) Let let, let, let me put it this way. He was older than my father. That's quite a bit older than you. Yes. Linda, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'd like to hear more about Dial and Linda. We'll be right back, folks. What was it like when you met him? I had never met such a mix of humor, which to me is, you know, hands down the most essential element in anyone that I'm I'm going to like. Humor and intelligence and and, um, he was a beautiful writer, absolutely beautiful writer, and a romantic. Not in the sense of Hollywood romanticism, but, um, but, but a romantic about the world. I mean, this was a man who, when he would fly around the continents to various assignments, would read E.E. E. Cummings' poetry on the plane. I mean, who reads poetry on an airplane? Um, and he just seized my mind and my heart in a way I had never been in love before. Um, I'd obviously had had, had boyfriends. But I fell head over heels in love with him. Did the age difference disturb you or him? It disturbed me only in the, to the extent that, given that everyone, a lot of other people around me said, oh, this is a daddy thing, it made me question that aspect of it. Um, a fellow reporter in the Dallas Bureau who when he learned of it and happened to have been Dial's age, said, uh, oh, someone my age, interested in someone in your age, is only in it for one of two, you know, it can only be one of two or both reasons. It's either sex or ego or both. Um, I think, you know, I I can't, now that I have more than surpassed the, the age that Dial was when he met me, it is kind of amazing to me that he would have fallen in love. Um, 
and I can't really put myself in his his position. I know that generally for an older man to take up with a younger woman, this is considered a macho thing, but that isn't the way he approached it at all. I mean, he used to say to me, you must be in love with me because I'm neither extremely handsome nor do I have money, which I guess is the only reason that a younger woman <laughs> in his mind would take up with an older man. You talked about, um, speaking of tears as being a release, you talked about um, having met a woman who I think was sleeping under a tree with 14 grandchildren. And that really sent you back to your room in tears. Yes. This woman, I think, if I recall the story, this was in El Salvador, and... um, I think the the government soldiers had come through and thought that 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 the townspeople were collaborating with guerrillas, and so I think they kidnapped her daughters, which meant and burned her the, her house, and she was living in a refugee camp, or she was living under a tree because she I don't even think there was room for her in a refugee camp with her daughter's children, and I met her. I think at a human rights office in San Salvador, where she was looking through the most gruesome pictures of people who had of bodies that had not been identified, in the hope of finding her her daughters. Just the the whole story. I mean, just pick one piece of that story, and even just one piece of that story is enough to make you cry. Absolutely. Absolutely. You said something a few minutes ago. You said that you thought that journalism was really a, an essential part of a democracy. And in today's world, journalism, fake news, uh, what do you think about this whole dilemma? I think it is so dangerous our democracy. I mean, there's a reason that the that, that the I, the concept of a free press and freedom of speech is enshrined as the First Amendment, the first, meaning the most important. Without a free press, and by denigrating the press, you are you are calling into question its veracity. Without a free press, you cannot have an informed electorate. And without an informed electorate, you do not have a democracy. And I, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you come down on, this is, this, this is, a, this is a non-issue. I mean, this is, there is no argument here. We need a free press, and we need a press that is, that is free to practice the profession and that is not denigrated at the highest levels of our government. Period. Yes, and end the quote. Linda Schuster, author of Dirty Wars and Polished Silver, The Life and Times of a War Correspondent Turned Ambassatrix. Linda, where can folks find out more about what you're doing, find out more about the book? The book you can find at your local independent bookstores, which I hope everyone will support. You can find it on Amazon. And I have a website with the very original name of lindaschuster.com. I like that name. Can you spell it for us? L-Y-N-D-A-S-C-H-U-S-T-E-R. All one word. Dot com. All right. LindaSchuster.com is the place to go. And all lowercase. 
Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the work that you've done. There's so much passion and so much power in your book. Thank you very much for that and for your time today. You are very welcome. It was fabulous talking to you. I can only say the same. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. It's available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's M. M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. You can also download the free Mind Talk app from the iTunes or Google Play stores. And folks, I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk. So please do send me an email. Let me know where you are. And also, if you've got any questions or comments or suggestions for Mind Talk programs, by all means, send an email to Pamela. P-A-M-E-L-A at mindtalk.org. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And folks, remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.